This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we get an update on Canada's relationship with China following the 5G ban on Huawei. Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director of the Indo-Pacific Program and Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurie Institute, takes us through tensions across Asia and more. Handy Andy Barrar is on the Shift with tips on how to stay safe while DIYing the summer, plus some accidents that we've all had and most common injuries with DIY. And of course, things that you probably shouldn't tell us, but you ask, we ask you to anyway. What's the dumbest injury that you probably have had and they're here. This is the Shift Podcast. DIY accidents, my goodness, 877-399-9898. One more time, that's the phone number and you can call or text in your storylines of your stories that you probably shouldn't tell me, but you're going to tell me about DIY accidents. There's a bunch. Um, oh, there's one from Bipolar Bear Lisa about the Irish and Ryan's sunburn, by the way, uh, that I wanted to get from Bipolar uh, Lisa. It was a conversation we had a few minutes ago. <laughs> Ryan okay. was um, um, talking about how he gets the, um, his uh, sunburns at like 17 degrees. And that's his Irish blood. Same thing with BK. Um, Bipolar Bear Lisa says, my hubby is so Irish, he gets a sunburn during a thunderstorm, which I thought was pretty creative. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, yeah, so, that's good. Thank you for that. Okay. Um Trucker Dan, I have caused many boo-boos and owies over my lifetime. However, nothing ever serious. On the other hand, my brother-in-law was building a workbench in his shop and screwed his index finger to the workbench through the bone. Nope. I have questions. First of all, like, how fast are you screwing to not flinch and pull that away? Because you must be really giving her. Like, nail gun is like instant. But if you're screwing, that seems like a slow burn, right? Am I right? A electric drill? Yeah. It has still, to be. Like it's still, I mean, if you're using a screwdriver, oh, my God. Let, that's a sucker for punishment. <laughs> this doesn't feel quite right. Something's not right here. I'll just keep turning and see if the pain goes away. All right. Um, not my craziest, uh, worst crazy injuries. In, oh, boy. Come on, brain. Not my worst crazy injury, but a friend went out to the barn at the lake after dark, and he stepped on the bottom of a wooden metal rake. The long wooden handle clobbered him in the eye, and he ended up with a big black eye. And uh, so goes out to the barn a couple of hours later and did it again. Oh, my God, that's really funny. Black eyes, uh, if you don't know this, in Radioland uh, is really the uh, the big injury about being on the radio. And so uh, Ryan O'Donnell, Brennan Kelly, if you, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever got a black eye on the radio? No, I have a really embarrassing black eye story, but it has nothing to do with the radio. BK, no black eye for you, DJing or on the radio? Uh, not from the radio or DJing, no. Actually, really? I don't think I've ever had a black eye, to be honest. I have had so many black eyes um, from from being on the radio and this is going to, for all you people that work like actual, like labor physical jobs, you're going to laugh at me being soft, but it's true. So when you pick your headphones off and then you put them on your head, but you let go too early and they slap and they get you right on the eyebrow, right on the oh, bone no. for the hard, with the metal cup. And I've had black eyes from that. It hurts like bad. It like it, it, it hurts. You're laughing. It does hurt bad. I don't care what you say. I believe no, I believe you. Wow. Yeah. Wow. No? No, I've never had that. Really? I'm, I'm, it's I'm, gonna happen now. I'm pretty gingerly and cautious in my movements. Like I'm trying to think of a self inflicted injury that I've had and I haven't really had too many major ones. Like I hit my finger with a hammer once. That's about it. But I mean like That's it, eh? Yeah, like even I couldn't imagine doing that with my headphones because I just I'm so cautious with my movements. <laughs> So cautious. All right, Linda's in Calgary. Linda, what is your uh, your self inflicted accident that you probably shouldn't tell us? Well, I um, the the so I was wearing winter boots and the they have notches on them and the laces the uh-huh. lace one of the loops from the laces on my right boot lassoed the notch. On my left, one of my left, but on my, well, only one left boot. And I went down on a tile floor. 
and dislocated my <laughs> arm in between my left elbow and my shoulder. And I was black and blue and orange and yellow and green and purple from my sternum to behind oh my. my left arm. I'm telling you, that hurt like a mother. That was unbelievable. <laughs> I'm serious, wow. and I found out I, I was allergic you. to Tylenol. I didn't, couldn't even take any painkillers. Oh, I was, man. I found out I was allergic to Tylenol, and I couldn't take painkillers, so I had to suffer through. And this was in public, too, hey? Nobody saw. It was in Dollarama. Oh. I went down all by myself, and then they had to sling my crossbody on and load my load it for me and then i i had i was taking the bus home and then i it was snowing and it was really bad this was just on the eve of the first lockdown that we ever had oh, and i fell twice more walking up like walking up 14th street hill in bankview that's amazing and i'm i'm glad you're okay now um remind me never to go for a walk with you um Thank you. Uh, thank you, Linda. I'm glad you're okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. bye. <laughs> bye. You, those are those little hooks on your boots, right, where you just loop them around? I've, I've had those. I didn't have a danger accident like that. 877-399-9898. Uh, hey, Shane, Ryan, DJ BK. Uh, Tina says, my stupid injury was I put the hammer on the top of the ladder, forgetting that I had done that. When I moved the ladder, the aforementioned hammer flew off, and the claws hit me just under my left eye. Give me instant swollen shiner. I just been chatting with the neighbors who witnessed my faux pas. Uh, my eye was black for a week. Oh, that's dangerous, man. Whoa. <laughs> uh, um, my worst self-inflicted injury from Lyle. I was getting equipment ready to do some sandblasting and went to turn the power on. 400 amp, 600 volt power box. The box exploded, causing my hand, arm, and shoulder to become electrocuted. Lost three weeks' work. It was in 1987. I have no feeling in my fingertips to this day. Many expletives were uttered in a hurt like hell. Whew. Life is dangerous, man. Mm-hmm. Like we say, oh, yeah, just fix it. You'll be fine. There's a reason why professionals are there. Uh, Shane, it's Ron. Saw some free lumber trying to remove a nail with a rubber grip hammer. The grip came off, and my pinky went sideways. Um was an emergency it was fun though i was 12 oh when we were young though there was some there was some crazy injuries wasn't there uh yeah my yeah um carol is in surrey hi carol how are you i'm good how are you first time listener i mean first time caller long time listener oh well thank you i'm either way i'm glad you're here thanks carol (laughs) yes What's okay, your uh, so what's the story putting, you probably shouldn't tell me? Well, I was putting up Christmas lights around my front door mm-hmm. and I had been using a manual stapler and thought it was going too slow, so I took a break and went and bought a electric stapler. Mm. And um as I returned to the job, my next door neighbor came over and said goodbye. He's a St. John ambulance person, I might add. He waved goodbye, and I thought, I'll just put in this last staple. Well, I stapled my thumb to the molding around my front door. So I was attached to the front door frame. It went right through my nail, through my thumb, and into the wood of the door frame. Well, the good news is the Christmas lights weren't going to come down. No, and I wasn't going anywhere unless I pulled my thumb off the molding. Ah, so Carol. there was nobody around. So I that's what I had to do. I had to pull my thumb off, but then the <sighs> staple was still in my thumb. Oh, so I went in the house, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? So I got a pair of needle-nose pliers oh, Carol. and pulled, <laughs> pulled the <laughs> staple out. And then I couldn't get the sucker to stop bleeding, like it was just spurting blood. But <laughs> I eventually got it stopped. Phoned the, um, I didn't phone nine one one, but I phoned yeah. um, that the nurse health linker, line. whatever they call it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, they said, "Well, if you can't get it stopped, I said, well, it's better than it was. Uh, just go to your doctor." So I wrapped it up tight and drove to my doctor and got a tetanus shot. 
They oh, had a man. very sore thumb. How did the Christmas lights look? Did they look all right? Well, the the bottom one never did get stapled. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because you know I, what? when I... I took the damn gun back. Oh, did you? <laughs> you didn't want to look at it anymore? <laughs> no. I'll go oh, back to funny. the manual one. It's much safer. Oh, that's fantastic. Carol, thank you very much for the phone call, okay. and thanks for listening and calling in. It's nice to meet you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, Carol. Uh, I See, when I put up my Christmas lights that I have up now, I normally wouldn't use a stapler. That's very Clark Griswold. But um, the when you go to squeeze the old school stapler, it kind of moves a little bit, right? So I wish I had the electric one like Carol did. <sighs> that was a lot. That one was a lot. Mm. Um, Larry says, dumbest injury to myself. Does my first marriage count? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good, sir. I was uh, in Sydney on uh, BC on Vancouver Island there and shrimping just on the wharf when I was a kid. And I was cutting, I was cutting um, fish to hang in the trap. And I had a really sharp knife and I was, um, I turned the knife, like I had the knife to turn the sharp side away because I was holding onto the fish and I turned it, but I must have already turned it and I cut myself on that finger. That's the first time I ever saw one of my bones and I was perfectly fine. It was just a silly accident. I cut it and I was like, ah, I don't know how old I was, maybe 14, 15. And I was like, ah, no, right? Because you feel that tingly sensation and then you're like, look, if you're like me right now, you got the tinglys like the heebie-jeebies right now. Uh, yep. And, and I was fine. And I'm not getting graphic about it, but then I was, you know, so you put pressure on it. You do all the things you were told to do, but then you're like, oh, okay, well, your brain kicks into like, okay, well, put pressure on it and got to get this cleaned off and uh, okay. And then you're like, okay, got to do this, got to do this. And then all of a sudden something hits you and you're like, yeah, I really need to sit down. <laughs> and then you go, and that just happened to me. I'm so bad with that stuff when I was clipping the dog's nails and I clipped one quick too short and I had to lie down on the kitchen floor with the dog. Because I got dizzy. She was fine. She didn't care. 877 uh, What is your uh, DIY, DIY or self-inflicted accident that um, you don't, probably shouldn't tell me? Um, when I was 16 and a party drunk, I went on a motorbike ride wearing shorts, burned my calf muscle on the muffler. Yeah. Yeah, you're not the only one who's done that. Hmm. I had a hammer that always hit two inches to the left. Isn't that the truth? Blame the hammer, I say. Uh, hi, Shane, Stephanie. I was moving a picture. It slipped and fell on the side of my foot. Um, during COVID, I was sharpening the lawnmower blade in the garage and slipped and lost my middle finger at the first knuckle. I have to use my right middle finger twice as much. <laughs> Trucker Dave. Wow. Okay, I guess that's a sharp lawnmower blade at that point if it slipped and... <whistles> yeah, these are uncomfortable. Uh, never get seawater in any deep cut. Well, Steve, I didn't, like, on purpose. Um, okay, 877-399-9898. Uh, we're short on time. Let's go to Ron, who's in Burnaby. Ron, i got to be quick here, bud, but what is your uh, story uh, that you wanted to pass on? Well, you already passed on my text. Uh, the part you missed was the uh, fact that I was 12 years old, and it was Demerol. Okay, which text was that, Ron? Because we don't know, we don't know, Ron, we don't know yeah. which text. So It was Ron about the, uh, the uh, free lumber. Oh, free lumber one, okay. Yeah, and uh, I ogled my uh, sister's girlfriend. And uh, in the ER, and I sang the Star Spangled Banner at the top of my lungs. Now, for all you DYIers that don't hire professional snow shovelers, if you're doing a sidewalk with ribbed concrete, never, oh. ever, ever, ever square the shovel to the sidewalk because I knock six teeth out. Oh, my God. That's a crazy injury, um, especially for shoveling snow. I've learned the lesson on a deep snow day that to not push the shovel and center the shovel like around your the center mass of your stomach or your groin when there's the seams in the sidewalk because that shovel stops quick, and it'll either knock the wind out of you or knock the wind out of you. 
depending on where it hits you. This is the Shift Podcast. We hurt ourselves in crazy ways, and speaking of that, it's time for Handy Andy. Andy is here. He's ready to go. He's rocking and rolling. He's got his skipping rope and some stories about accidents just like that. You ever got a paper cut in your eyeball, Andy? Uh, no. And it's because every time I do uh, uh, work, I'm always wearing protective eye gear. So I probably could have had a paper cut, but because I was had my safety goggles on, um, it never got to my eye. What if it wasn't work? What if it was just just working in the office, just doing the things and you got attacked by a paper plane or something? Yeah, well, thankfully that that hasn't happened. You know, the, the, the eye injuries are the ones that I really worry the most. But for me, Shane, it's usually the hands is where I'm usually um, getting injured the the most. It, it, I always cut myself every time, even even when I try not to cut myself. Pretty much every DIY project, you know, I cut myself so much that my safety kit in my bathroom, I had to restock it with band aids from the dollar store. That's mm. how many times I cut myself. Big spender. Nothing but the best for Andy, eh? Only only the best safety supplies for me, Shane. Good old-fashioned dollar store band-aids. All right. I love it. HandyAndyMedia.com. Follow Andy's website and his YouTube page as well. Videos are posted at shiftheads.ca too, so you can check it out. So you inspired this conversation because... You love the DIY. You love trying things, figuring it out, recycling materials, and you have some stats. And we need to talk about safety here when it comes to all this stuff because we do have too many injuries. Uh, very clear through COVID. Yeah, absolutely. We um, we always talk about DIY projects. I'm a big proponent of it. I, I encourage people to try to do DIY before you hire somebody, you know, save some money. But something interesting happened during the pandemic. We were all stuck at home. And whether you're a DIYer or not, you probably tried to fix something during that pandemic time. And guess what? Two years later, there was an insurance company. They looked back at all the, the injuries that, and hospital visits. And what they found was injuries related to home improvement projects accounted for 3% of all emergency room visits in 2020. And the highest point, the lowest actually was in January of 2020, before we had everything on the lockdown. Uh, and I think a lot of people were just trying to avoid the hospital. But around April, you had 4% followed by May and June. So those were back-to-back -back months of just hospital yeah. visits on people stuck at home. Suddenly, they want to avoid, you got to remember, this is during COVID. So they yeah. don't want to go to the hospital, but they had to because they got injured. And um, that's really what fueled this whole uh, conversation about injuries them from DIY projects. So were they staying away from their partners maybe after? Because at that point, they've been basically working at home for about a month. They're probably sick of their families. So they're trying to keep themselves busy. Yeah. And that's when we saw the, the home stores, right? That you couldn't get anything. That's when right. the price of lumber started to skyrocket because everyone was like, I'm going to reno the house. Let's add a third floor. Um, stuff like that. And people were like, no, I'll do it. Yeah, and if you haven't done a DIY project for a while, you know, you can get rusty and you can probably forget things. What was interesting, Shane, was there was 290,000 home improvement injuries and about 24,000 of them actually required a hospital stay. And when it comes to projects in your home that, that create injuries, the most common one was redoing your bathroom plumbing, fixing roof shingles, and this is the scariest one, replacing electrical panels, which oh, you're co coming big. from me. I'm a, I'm a DIYer shape. I don't touch electrical, okay? Because really? there's a couple of I'll things that can light, go wrong. Like I'll do a light fixture, but not a panel. Come not on. Not at your panel. No, no. You can turn a breaker on or off. That's about it. But mm -hmm. don't be doing work on your electrical panel. Um, funny enough, there's actually a, a tech company, Shane. They want me to install this thing in my electrical panel where I can see how much energy is being used from each breaker. And wow. so they sent me this kit and they're like, you're a DIY guy. And they sent me this kit and I looked at it and I'm like, you want me to open up my panel? I'm like, 
I cannot do this. So they're actually hiring an electrician to come to my house to install this. And I even emailed them. I'm like, you probably want to come a day earlier and just check out my panel because it's old. And, you know, I'm not looking forward for the person who has to work on that. So let alone myself. So that's one of those kind of things you want to stay away from. Do not do electrical work. Uh, A lot can go wrong. And those kind of injuries you, you will definitely regret. I um I um, I mean you make me imagine like a Bugs Bunny like those big panels that chunk ones like that's yeah. what your panel is, is it those big ones? Okay, safety things. What do we need to do to be safe, Andy? Well, the, basically, you want to figure out like what could go wrong, and usually it's lacerations. It's usually your fingers and your hands. Those are the most common injuries that people are get with DIY. So, of course, the first thing you want to do when you're working is wear gloves, and wear protective eye goggles. Uh, a lot of people will avoid that. Me, you know, I have really good work gloves, Shane. Sometimes I forget to put them on and it'll be something dumb like I'm sanding a, a piece of wood and I just rub my hand on it. And then I get all these like, you know, little time pieces of wood going into my fingers. And then I got to get tweezers to poke them out. You know, mm-hmm. little silly things like that. But, you know, you have to have safety goggles. Now, sometimes I don't use safety goggles. I'll just use sunglasses or something to protect my eye. When, when you're doing something where something can come in, inside your eyes. So the, the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is when you're doing DIY projects, you want to think about what you're wearing. So watches, bracelets, necklaces, long sleeve clothing, all of that can get caught up. So those are the kind of things you want to avoid, especially when you're using stuff with moving parts or, or power tools, um, especially saws. That's the big thing. When I bought a table saw, Shane, I bought this battery-powered table saw. It's super small, super portable, and I, I was waiting for it to come. And I kid you not, I must have spent about two days just watching um, videos on table saw safety measures because, mm-hmm. you know, with a table saw, a lot could go wrong if you're not using it properly. And one common people thing make with table saws is they're, they're feeding the wood to, through the table saw, but they don't realize that when you get to the end, sometimes that wood, depending on how you have it configured, might kick back and come back mm-hmm. at you. So you're supposed to go to just a little bit to the side, side just yeah. in case that kicks back, it won't go uh, and, and hit you right in the stomach because those, those, these things actually happen. I feel sorry for, you know, like, the, I don't know if they have like workshops or, and woodworking shops in high school anymore, but you have to wonder about those teachers because you got a bunch of kids 15, 16 year olds, and, they're and you got to teach machines. them safety. And they yep. think they're all invincible. I used to think yep. I was invincible. Oh, we were running lathes and band saws and table saws and all the things like we did. Um, did I ever tell you I was an apprentice carpenter? Did I ever tell you that? No, you did not. So you you yeah, must know all about the, the safety. Very method. first lesson in carpentry was how to build a push stick for the table saw. And so you had to design a push stick and most people built like a hockey stick or whatever and you had a little knot so you could push the stuff through. And you're right, the kickback thing is a very, very big deal and the push stick makes a big difference. My very yeah. first experience with this accidental injury was not me. It was I was probably eight and we went to this little old lady's house. I don't know her name. And after school, it was a couple blocks away from the school. They were old and retired and her husband had a shop in the basement and he was always working away, carpentry shop in the basement. And we went in one day and everybody was there. He was there. We went in the next day. He was gone. And then we went in the next day and he's got his arm in a sling. And I remember saying to my mom, what happened? And they said, oh, he had to have his thumb reattached. And that's what he did. It was a table saw and he pushed with thumbs out and just just zoom and took his thumb off. And then he drove himself. He got his thumb, put it on ice, wrapped up his finger and drove himself to the hospital. And then they reattached his thumb. Wow. See, Isn't that wild? And you know what? These are the things that, that I, I worry about. And that's why I took the time to watch those videos. Because like you said, with that that little push stick, a lot of table saws, that comes with it now. They have a little holder yeah, they where they, they have a dedicated yeah. push stick. There's one, there's one piece of product that I also bought. And you can anyone can Google this. It's called the gripper. And it's kind of like a push stick, but it's like a block chain. And mm-hmm. it allows you to hold the wood with your hand and push it right through so that your fingers stay far, far away from the saw. That Those are the ones that worry me the most because when I was a kid, my brother was cutting the lawn and he put his finger. There was a little bit of, uh, of grass on the bottom that got stuck in the lawnmower. 
and he put oh, his God. hand underneath and he shaved just the tip of his finger off. Now ah. they've 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 actually made safety features in lawnmowers so you can't do that anymore. As soon as you let go of the handlebar, the yeah, lawnmower so was shut off because people were doing that all the time. And mm-hmm. even like older men, experienced people, they just oh, they're not thinking when the, when the- when the chute would get clogged and people would stick their hand in and stuff, like yeah. it was wild what people would do. I, the gripper was big. That was a big push block one. I just looked it up. Um, and so that's amazing. They did make some technology that would, as soon as it detected flesh, the blade would stop. Like that's yes. amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would be the guy who wanted to test it, but you know, go from there. Let me tell you a quick story here. Cause there was a guy, I remember I was living in St. Catharines where Brendan Kelly's from. And, um, and, my, my my wife at the time had met one of the neighbors and he was uh, a butcher at one of the local grocery stores. And what he used to do to the neighbors is he would get the flyers. When the flyers would come out, he would take them from the store and he would bring them to all the neighbors and he would say, this is what's going on sale tomorrow. Take your pick. I'll get you the best cuts. And so he would go into work in the morning before anything went on, you know, out to the floor and he would get all the best cuts and then he would portion them out for everybody, just package them like normal. There was, he didn't give us anybody a deal. It was just the regular store bought price, but it was on sale. So you could pick your stuff and you always got amazing cuts of meat. I hadn't met the guy. Ding dong rings the door. I go to the door and there's a guy standing at the doorstep and he waves. Hi. And he was missing two fingers. And I was like, let me guess, butcher guy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was what it was. He had missing two fingers because of the bandsaw. Yeah, it's um, those, and it's scary because now I think about the like shop classes, and and I'm like, wow, how did I not get injured? Because when you're like 15, 16, you just think you're invincible. You yeah. you don't think that your fingers can get cut off. But you know, these days, I am so like like I won't even have a beer if I have to do any kind of cuts. That's another safety tip: do yeah, not drink, drink alcohol. And and use power, power tools. tools. <laughs> you know you know what alcohol is for? It's for the cleanup. When you're when you're like at the end of the day and you're you're sweeping and, and trying to clean up your mess for the next day so you can work again, that's when you pull out the beers, not before. Yeah. And even to this day, I, I just do not do any of that because that's where danger ensues. Andy shared about the projectors, uh, what it looks like to have, you know, really up-to-date technology inside our houses to watch the movies and all those cool things. There's more to add to this story, which is the sound experience, isn't it, Andy? That's right. This is part two of what we were talking about um, in a home theater setup. Uh, last week, I was recommend people might want to consider a projector. Now, if instead of getting um, a 4K TV, if they really want a big screen. But now we're talking about sound. And, you know, Shane, you're obviously going to remember, you're an audio guy. Back in like the 80s and 90s. Everybody wanted to get a surround sound system. You would get your your amplifier, a 5.1 system. You would have like three speakers in the front, one in the center, two on the sides, and then you would have two speakers behind you to get that 5.1 sound. And it was great. It was it was, you know, a great setup. It sounds good, but it's just a lot of a setup. And you know, these days people are they don't want so much clutter. We don't want these big honking speakers in our living rooms. So what you're seeing a transition towards soundbars, and that's what we're talking about today because I recently reviewed a new soundbar from Sony, the S400, and this is a wireless soundbar and subwoofer combo. And what's great about it is that you can mount it right onto the wall. It has these little screwing plates, so you can put some screws right into the wall, and this soundbar will just sit nicely onto the wall. The subwoofer is completely wireless. It doesn't matter where you put it in the room. So you could put it right into the corner. You could have it close to you on by the couch if you want to actually feel the bass. But once you get everything set up, Shane, it uses Bluetooth now. And you, so you're starting to see more televisions. Of course, we have our mobile devices take Bluetooth. But it creates just a really slick, clean look inside your living room without the need for wires. And you can get amazing sound. Now, the interesting thing about this one from Sony is they're talking about like, oh, we have this proprietary technology to give you a surround sound feeling. And I'm like, how are you doing that if you just have a sound bar in the front? And so I tested this out. People can watch the, the review, shiftheads.ca, or you can go to my website, handyandymedia.com to see my YouTube video. But essentially, they're using this digital signal processing chain inside to actually make it sound like a surround sound system even though it's just coming from in front of you and and it's it's just hard to imagine but you could actually hear it 
in the video that I, I showed right in the beginning, you can kind of hear that it's giving that surround sound. I think I was watching something off Netflix like Animal Planet. And I'm very, very impressed. So you really don't need that 5.1 or 7.1 system to really get good audio for your home theater experience. These new sound bars, especially even Bluetooth, it's really, really good. I highly recommend you check it out. You can go to shiftheads.ca or, of course, my website, handyandymedia.com to hear for yourself how these sound bars sound for maybe about three, $400, so not too expensive. Well, isn't that interesting? So I was the, the sub that I have here in my office is um, is fantastic. It's a great little sub. It's 12-inch, and it's exactly like you talk about. It's, it's Bluetooth wireless. It's Klipsch. And, um, and I don't... Um, I don't use the Bluetooth. I have it wired in directly, so I haven't used it. So I just wanted it to go with my my monitors, which are pretty fantastic. And so we went into Costco, and they have the matching 5.1 system to go with it without the sub. And my son was like, oh, you should get it. And then I was like, yeah, but you know what? We need to change our thinking because the old thinking said you had to have all these speakers around, and now you can just have a little bar in the front, and the technology yeah. and and the echo really changes things for everybody to be able to to enjoy that. We need to change that thinking. It's simpler and cheaper. Less stuff. Less stuff, less clutter, and you still get a great quality sound. That's really the secret with wireless technology. And because it's Bluetooth, you could play stuff off your, your phone as well at the same time. So it's a multi-use type of device, not just your TV, but anything. Even talk radio, you can listen to Shift on a soundbar. Look at that sales pitch. That's why I love my brother, Andy. HandyAndyMedia.com. Go check out his website. You can see the video there. Or subscribe to his YouTube channel and at ShiftHeads.ca. Thanks, buddy. Don't cut your fingers off. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Right. I won't. Safety is number one. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, it's news from last week. Impacts us everywhere. I'm going to start this story by saying uh, there's an awful lot of countries that weren't allowing Huawei technology into infrastructure because of connections, government, all that stuff. There seemed to be, I haven't seen the evidence, but we're told there was an awful lot of evidence for an awful lot of countries that said this is a bad idea. The irony for me of walking out of the uh, arrivals down the escalators in the Ottawa airport, and I know that Jonathan Berkshire Miller can picture this with me, because you walk from this long, skinny terminal through these automatic doors, and you turn left, and you go down, there's two escalators, and as you go down those escalators, you can see all, I think it's about four baggage carousels in Ottawa right there, if you're coming domestically. And in that, on the left wall, there is this giant TV set of advertising to sell advertising. And for two years... All of the advertising on that wall was Huawei. It's not Huawei anymore. I think it's Bell. Uh, and so I found it extremely ironic that the sponsor of the baggage carousel in the Ottawa airport was Huawei when all of the people were saying, don't use Huawei. Now, that's just an anecdote that I found a little ironic and fun and playful. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for uh, being here back on the shift. Great to see you. Oh, it's great to see you as well. I'm uh, always happy to be on and uh, nice to chat with you again. Jonathan Berkshire Miller is director of the Indo-Pacific Program, senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. And you know that 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 walk. You've done that walk many times, and it's a big advertisement on the wall. Looks like the uh, the love affair with Huawei has changed in Canada. Yeah, I have done that walk uh, several times, uh, and starting to do it more now. The pandemic uh, is easing. Um, and and I agree with you. I mean, things have been changing um, in Canada on this front. I think. I mean. Just thinking about that description, as you mentioned, Shane, I mean, and the fact that there's this big advertisement in the Ottawa airport, I think it shows the, the difficult nature of this problem and how this problem has been um, thought about by the Canadian government. Is this idea that we could uh, bifurcate or separate um, economy and security and the idea that uh, private businesses should be able to operate um, independent of national security? I think we're realizing that, especially as it relates to China, and I think Huawei is just one example of this. Um, and I should know, um, you know, the recent Canada made on, on 5G is not just Huawei, it's also ZTE and other Chinese carriers. Bifurcation of security and, and the economy doesn't make sense anymore. Um, the reality is, especially with a country like China, um, they have national security laws that compel 
companies like Huawei uh, to cooperate uh, with national intelligence and national security organizations. And this is a huge factor that, uh, that countries like Canada need to take into consideration. Um, my last point on this is I would say it's a good news that Canada finally uh, stepped to the plate and made a pretty clear decision on this. Um, unfortunately, this did take a long time. We were the last of the Five Eyes networks to make a, a decision on this. And I think that's going to have some, uh, some credibility and reputational costs, despite the fact that we, we finally did the right thing and made, made this call. Now, the, the cost of this has skyrocketed because there was a lot of technology that was involved in this. And the Five Eyes folks had basically said, you're in or you're out in all of this. Now, your purview is the Indo-Pacific with everything that's going on you know, around the world today. You can't deny the fact that you know, Russia kind of tiptoes on the Pacific um, Russia and Ukraine, and then of course there's uh, China's relationship with Russia, and then there's India's uh, well purchasing at a discount of Russian oil and gas. Like so, this whole segmented in your own world look at the Pacific has must have shifted in the last little bit too, because it's you see the entanglement. I guess is my point. Yeah, I think you're right. And um, I mean, one of the things I've been saying uh, about the Russia's you know uh, unjustified war in Ukraine. Um, is that rather than thinking about this as a European security crisis or something that is uh, just affecting our Ukrainian friends, and obviously they're bearing the, the brunt um, of the awful conflict that, that Russia, Russia has uh, prosecuted, uh, but this is really a global security crisis. And I think, Shane, you mentioned it as uh, India's reaction, um, how China's viewing this conflict, how it's uh, also abetting Russia in some ways, and we've seen this uh, diplomatically through um, uh, the UN Security Council, um, support, but we're also seeing this through disinformation and sort of parroting some of the Russian lines about uh, about this conflict being um, a result of NATO's expansionism. Uh, and China also using those lines in the Indo-Pacific and saying, well, you know, look what the Americans and Europeans have been doing to uh, encroach on Russian borders in Ukraine, and this is basically just desserts. Uh, and look what's also happening now in our part of the world um, with organizations such as the Quad, which is a, an alignment of the United States, India, Australia, and Japan, uh, in addition to other alliances. So China's basically using the exact same argument to say, well, the Americans through their alliance networks are doing the, the same thing and we have no other choice but eventually to push back. Um, so there, this, is, uh, this crisis, I think, has been an eye-opener. Um, we've seen states in this part of the world like Japan and South Korea that traditionally try not try to hedge or balance relations with Russia now have realized that uh, we have no choice uh, but to take a, a firm stance because if we're if we're just going to let large uh, states take territory without any consequences, um, what does this mean in our part of the world when uh, the same thing might happen to us? Well, there's two looks here. Um, touch on both and take it where you need to go. Okay, so you got the the quad, the four quad, which is. Um India, Japan, Australia, and USA. Canada was left out of that relationship. And then you have the five eyes, which was putting the squeeze on saying, you can't be here if you're going to do this. Look back on Canada. Uh, telecom companies in Canada spent about $700 million on Huawei technology during the delay alone. That's going to go. It would have been about $300 million uh, if it would been decided earlier. You know, so there's all kinds of political conversations about who's going to pay for that. $400 million net difference on that is huge. And, you know, we, we all know how much things are going up in price. So here we are with a look of these delays from our government cost an awful lot in tactile dollars, plus the impact of the four quad. Is that a massive political lesson that can, Canada needs to learn from when you get excluded? I mean, these are... Easy terms. These are our best friends, Jonathan. Yeah. And they basically said, look, you're not welcome here until you get a new lock on that door. Yeah, I would agree with you. And, and again, I think, you know, one of the challenges that Canada faces when they approach issues, you know, such as 5G or uh, such as some of the global security issues that we're facing um, is that it's in our blood, it's in our sort of what we feel like is in our sort of pedigree to uh, solve all these problems through multilateralism. And when I say multilateralism, I mean some of the big institutions. Uh, and what we're what we're realizing, and I mean, this was you know definitely the case uh, during the Cold War as well, is that while multilateralism can be helpful in some situations, it's not sufficient, um, and that's why we've seen the outgrowth uh, of the Quad. The Five Eyes obviously has been in existence uh, since the end of uh, World War II, but our sort of reluctance reluctance to depend on these organizations and our sort of preference for multilateralism, I think, has been short sighted. 
Um, so that is a big reason why we're seeing these challenges. The second point I'll mention on uh, 5G is we've really let down the private sector here in, in many regards. Of course, private sector businesses do their own, uh, make their own decisions, have, should be conducting their own risk analysis. But at the end of the day, these national security decisions need to come from, from the federal government. And it's sort of well, set up for failure, right? I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, it is on. They made it. Uh, Rogers said that they went with Ericsson. There was no impact to them. So they made that decision. Other companies did not. I mean, that's their responsibility. So the risk assessment thing is, is fair. But you, you got to set up business for success. And that was not done. Yeah, at least you have to give them a timeline of, what, of, of uh, how decisions could be made, when decisions could be made. And again, fully admitting that, that private sector companies need to make their own decisions. But I think the idea of basically de facto putting this decision on business and saying, you make the decision. Um, we all know what it is privately, but we don't want to take the, the brunt of making that public decision. I don't think that was the right approach. Um, and so there, there's definitely lessons to be learned here. Let me ask you a hard question. Um, this is the, uh, I mean, this is your world. I mean, you are the director of Indo-Pacific program. So at uh, McDonald Laurier, so um, is, indec- uh, is multilateralism, you know, getting, trying to be diplomatic with all these different groups and everything else. Is that just a real nice way to say indecisive, lacking direction um, and all those, you know, words that aren't very nice? Are, are we just being nice when we say multi, you know, multilateralism versus an inability to know what's best or? Well, I think it goes into this narrative that Canadians share that um, essentially international institutions are meant and have been developed to protect our interests. And as a, you know, a, a smaller country or a, a middle power, which is, again, is, a, is, a, is an argument that I push back on. I mean, I think we're still our G7 country. Yes, we're not uh, a P5 nuclear power, but we still are a large country. Uh, but there's this narrative that basically as a small, smaller state, um, these institutions are meant to protect us. The challenge being that institutions internationally are only as good um, as when they're functioning. Um, and they don't often function when you have larger powers, especially that pay no heed or respect to them. Um, and this is, uh, so our reliance or over-reliance on international institutions to solve every problem that we have or to discipline or to enforce uh, laws, norms, and rules um, uh, sometimes is thrown out uh, in crises when the big powers are. Uh, are, are manipulating them. They they work sometimes when it's uh, when it's smaller powers or middle powers that can be disciplined through the international system. But they often don't work, especially when you have uh, two members that are uh, permanent members on the United Nations Security Council, uh, China and Russia, who can essentially just veto at a whim and say, "No, we disagree with that. Uh, we we will not be sanctioned." Um, so we have to think about creative workarounds. Um, no one's saying to throw throw out multi- multilateralism and just go rogue, but we have to think about complementing that with uh, with some of these mini laterals uh, like the Quad, et cetera. When you study all these countries and and you know the relationships between the countries, how do you and your colleagues look at, respond, um, interpret these countries that do that? That you know, I think a great example of what we've learned from Ukraine has been Turkey. Turkey has to navigate who their neighbor is, who their neighbor's going to be, who they sell arms to, how they move uh, agriculture product and who they buy from. You know, they are right in that pocket. Plus, there's whole there's all kinds of faith conversations, too. And they're right in that pocket of trying to be forced to navigate differently than most other countries. Right. And not to mention the access to the Black Sea. So you got countries like that, that, that are forced to do it. And then you have these other countries that just literally could give a damn like Russia. And they're like, I'm doing this today. And by the way, if you say that I'm going to do that tomorrow in, in the world where you study this and you watch all these countries and what they do, is this a bang your head against the wall moment? Or is this just the way it's been for so long that we have this romantic notion of international politics? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there is a period in history, and especially I think this came with globalization post-Cold uh, War era, where we basically thought geography didn't matter anymore. Uh, you know, the geography is small, uh, you know, we're all zipping around in airplanes. And I think even pre-pandemic, I mean, the pandemic was a very glaring reminder that the world is, is a bit bigger uh, than we imagined. Even provinces had, had restrictions set up. Um, and for Canada, geography has been a defining characteristic. I mean, the reality is we have one border, it's the United States. Um, and I think while we don't say this uh, explicitly in our foreign policy and our outlook on the world, 
we still have this fortress North American mentality. Um, and I often make the analogy to uh, global issues as luxury items, and this is the way that the Canadian uh, side thinks of them. Um, they don't explicitly say that, of course, they say all the right things. But if you were to think about a problem, for example, the Indo-Pacific like uh, challenge over Taiwan, um, even, even uh, the conflict in Ukraine, as much as we're doing on this, Effectively, do we really think that's an existential challenge to Canada's security? Um, no, I think we think this is something that we should help out because we're a G7 country and we have you know, uh, shared values and interests. Um, we need to change that mindset to realize that some of the challenges globally, if we don't address them, eventually will fall uh, right on our head. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of a mindset issue that I think that we have when we think of foreign affairs issues. That we take it for granted. Um you know, and, and that, you know, I, I guess it's been my argument too, through all of this, that, you know, Canada is not self-sufficient in so many different ways, right? If, if these relationships break down, we're done. Um, because we don't have help. We don't have, you know, well, we didn't have masks and ventilators to go back in time and, and look at two years ago. Right. So, um, are, are we, are we complacent? Are we, as Canadians, um, do we need to, or is this just like the wake up call that it's been all the way along and now we're aware of it? Um, I think that it's a bit of both. I mean, I think again, part of this nature of the U S security guarantor relationship, the, you know, the immense trade relationship we have with the Americans, of course, we don't agree with everything that, that, uh, that they do south of the border. But I think that has given us this sense of complacency that, you know, effectively we're in a pretty good situation. Um, the problem, as I said, is that these things will eventually fall in our head. If you think about Canada, I mean, we were involved in both of uh, uh, the world wars, World War One and World War Two, and a lot of that was not what was happening in North America, but what was happening in Europe. And I argue the exact same thing um, could happen either in Europe or, or in Asia. Um, one example, if there is to be a contingency or a potential hot conflict over Taiwan uh, in the coming years, we hope there isn't. But if there is to be one between the United States and China, um, Canadians would be under illusions if they felt that this was one that we just had. It's a war of choice, uh, like uh, Iraq in 2003. And we can say, well, you know, as much as we feel for the Taiwanese, we're not part of this. I can guarantee if the Americans are in a hot war with China and Asia, we're involved. Um, and I don't think Canadians fully appreciate uh, uh, that understanding. Well, Ukrainians say that today. They say this is not a war of Ukraine. This is a war for the world, right? We are fighting the war. It just happens to be in Ukraine today. And that really echoes with me. That stays with me. Uh, Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Director of Indo-Pacific uh, Program, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier. So here, here's one for you. Is this the biggest, what is the biggest um, conversation, uh, Indo-Pacific, that's happening? Here's some notables that have happened in the news, right, internationally recently, right? You've got Russia and China, um, flying very close and invading other airspace together. Um, you've got North Korea launching rockets as soon as the president's over there. Um, you know, so there's been an awful lot of uh, muscle flexing, if you will. And when we look at internationally, is it the four quad relationship that's the biggest one going on right now? Or is it sort of the ripple effect of this posturing that's coming from, I guess, the bravado of Russia? I'm not saying it's working. I'm just saying the bravado that they're putting out there. What, I mean... You can see the ripple effect at this point, right? What what what's the biggest thing? Yeah, I think that's, a, that's a, you know, there's so much to choose from, and I think that's that's part of the challenge. And you know, if you think back again to the days of the you know post Cold War, not to say we were living in a global bliss because there were a lot of challenges, uh, and people often refer to it as the fragile states period. You had um, you know civil war in Somalia, for example, where we we, we sent a, a peacekeeping mission. Obviously, we know the history of that. Um, but I guess my point is that the, at that point in time, there were much more manageable, smaller scale issues uh, that we could address. Um, just as you sort of hinted in your list there, whether it's, you know, uh, North Korea and its nuclear weapons program, uh, Russia also being a Pacific state, uh, increasing its activities in the Pacific China in many dimensions, whether it's their border conflict with India, the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan. Um, there's a so much on the global mindset, in addition to a pandemic and an economy where the, the shoe is yet to drop, that we I worry there's not enough attention span to address some of these issues. And I think North Korea's example, I wouldn't use North Korea as, as the uh, key global threat and going forward, but it's a good example of a very um, significant security problem that keeps growing, that there is zero uh, attention span to right now. 
Um, no one has the time to focus on something like North Korea right now. Yeah. Um, when, it's almost a novelty. It's a novelty. Yeah. At this point, you know, it's a, it, it's a complete free rider on the, the situation. And this is something the North Koreans have, have perfected over the years is realizing that there are bigger fish to fry for the international community, whether it's managing Russia, whether it's managing the rise of China, um, that North Korea can sort of drive right up the middle. Um, and um, so there's a lot of things to deal with uh, in this part of the world. And, and I fear that the, the attention span is just not uh, not there and definitely not there from a Canadian perspective. I don't give them much credit, but I'll give them the credit of their timing is impeccable in North Korea of when they do things, right? Um, they always seem to have the perfect timing when no one else is looking, you know, classic Houdini sort of scenario where they're like, hey, everyone's looking over there. Let's do this now. Or they want to get attention back on themselves. So that's remarkable. Uh, Jonathan, last question here before we're done. I'm so grateful for you being so generous with your time. Japan has disputed islands with Russia. Canada shares the northern border, at least disputed islands and minerals and all those things with Russia. Uh, that sort of must bring all of this back into your uh, Indo-Pacific slightly um, program, we need to pay attention to everything that's going on truly, don't we? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, and again, I think you're showing the diversity of the different challenges. I mean, this is not just, uh, you know, a challenge between China and its neighbors. I mean, Russia, as you mentioned, has four disputed islands uh, in the north of Japan. Uh, and one of the, the most disturbing developments that we're seeing, and I, we haven't quite seen it in the Arctic yet, because I think Russia and China uh, often diverge more than converge on issues in the Arctic. I think the Russians are still mistrustful of, of China trying to you know, impose itself in the Arctic. But what we are seeing a real um, convergence on is Russia-China strategic cooperation more broadly. Um, Japan is extremely concerned about this, uh, naval exercises around Japan's uh, vicinity. I think we're going to see a lot more of this now as Russia's friend list grows from you know, maybe 15 or 20 to, to two or three um, in, in the midst of this, uh, their war in Ukraine. Um, so all of this has big implications for Canada um, and our, our most important partners in this part of the world, including Japan. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the insight. Boy, oh boy. I, you know, I, I really enjoy our time together, but I do not. I do not. Can't even imagine your work day. <laughs> <laughs> and the conversations that you guys have to have when you're monitoring all these things all the time. I just, wow. It's hard Brain to keep explode. up. It's hard to keep up, but I always enjoy doing this, Shane. And um, yeah, we'll have, next time we'll do it over beer. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 